Ladies and gentlemen, we are fortunate to have with us today an impressive lineup of experts who have extensive knowledge of and experience in Middle Eastern politics, history, and law. It's being called the New Arab Awakening. The winds of change and unrest are sweeping through the Middle East and altering the political landscape in seemingly irreversible fashion. Much has already taken place in Tunisia and in Egypt, yet those stories are far from over. And anyone who is tempted to expect Middle Eastern history to conform to a single storyline need only look to Libya, Bahrain, Iran, and elsewhere to learn otherwise. So many of us around the world are glued to television sets, computer screens, and smart, uh, smartphones, anxiously awaiting the next verse of this epic and eager to understand the ramifications for the region and for global economic and democratic stability. There was no question in planning today's luncheon that there would be much to discuss and that the story would continue to unfold literally as we speak. Let's kick things off with some introductions beginning with our moderator. Until his retirement in 2009, Don Newman was the quintessential voice of political broadcasting in Canada. In fact, some would say that he still is. As the former senior parliamentary editor for CBC Television and host of CBC News World's daily uh, politics program, Mr. Newman has covered some of our country's most noteworthy political episodes, including visits by world leaders, leadership conventions, and federal elections. He is a member of the Order of Canada and holds an honorary Doctor of Laws degree from his alma mater, the University of Winnipeg. To today's panel, Mokhtar Lamani has an impressive record of international diplomatic service. He served as Ambassador Special Representative of the Arab League in Iraq, working to build peaceful relations, uh, relations between Iraq and neighboring countries. As Ambassador of the Organization of the Islamic Conference to the United Nations from 1998 to 2004, Mr. Lamani spearheaded a number of Middle Eastern initiatives, including the mission to Afghanistan in 1998. Professor Mohammed H. Fidel joined the University of Toronto's Faculty of Law in 2006. He holds doctorate degrees in law and in Near Eastern languages and civilizations. Professor Fidel was admitted to the Bar of New York in 2000 and to Ontario's Bar in 2009. He practiced law in New York and is currently counsel at one of Canada's top business law firms, Bennett Jones, where he specializes in Islamic finance. Professor Fidel has published numerous articles on Islamic legal history. Michael Bell is currently the Paul Martin Senior Scholar on International Diplomacy at the University of Windsor, where he teaches on the law and politics of the modern Middle East. He is the former chair of the Donor Committee of the International Reconstruction Fund Facility for Iraq and is also a former Canadian Forest Service officer with 36 years of experience in the Department of Foreign Affairs. He was Canada's ambassador to Jordan from 1987 to 1990, to Egypt from 1994 to 1998, and to Israel from 1990 to 92, and from 1999 to 2003. So I hope you'll agree that our panel is well qualified to lead this discussion today. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our moderator and panelists. 
Thank you, Nick. Why don't you take the middle, uh, okay. Michael? Yeah. Well, good afternoon, everybody. It's uh, wonderful to see you all here, and uh, it's a great pleasure, I know, for the panel, but particularly for me, to uh, be back on the stage at the Canadian Club. Uh, I thought when I became a director that had finished me as a speaker at the Canadian Club, but apparently uh, not, not quite. This may be the swan song, but it's uh, nice to be back and see so many friends in the room as well. Uh, as Nick was pointing out, this is uh, a topic that is an ongoing topic, even as we speak, as they say. When we originally were planning this event, uh, Egypt, I think uh, President Mubarak was still president in Egypt, and we knew that things were going to be happening, but we didn't realize exactly how they would. So um, I think to be absolutely up to the minute, Mokhtar, I want to start with you because I know you were listening to uh, President Gaddafi and getting reports of what President Gaddafi was saying in Libya, probably even as we were eating, because he likes to speak for quite a while, but before we started the, uh, <coughs> uh, the uh, lunch today, uh, it seems that the winds have changed. I think we were anticipating we were going to blow through the Middle East, particularly after President Mubarak left. Uh, certainly in Libya, at least, they've run into a wall. What, what, what is the latest that you know from Libya and what uh, President Gaddafi has been saying? Well, when I left home this morning in Waterloo to come here, I was not sure that once here, Gaddafi would be still in power. Mm. Things are moving very, very quickly. And uh, not only in Libya, or, uh, but I think everywhere. What I would like to mention about this, just for people to understand what's happening in this specific part of the world. As originally from this part, I myself was not expecting that at all to happen during my lifetime. Mm. And to understand this, why this frustration and why this collective reaction, let me give just one small example. In the early 2000-2001, when former Tunisian President Ben Ali was preparing for election and he would like to stay for, as president for forever, he asked, he was oppressing all kinds of opposition. And at the same time, he asked a guy from his own party to establish, to create another party, opposition party, and to present himself against him during the elections. Mm -hmm. What happened, this guy, one, he, pre he did what the president told him, but one week before the election, he came on TV to tell the Tunisian people, listen, you have to vote for Ben Ali, he's much better than me. <laughs> so, with such story, to show how they were taking their own people. You mentioned about Gaddafi. Gaddafi, I myself, when I used to work for the Arab League during 10 years, I was a member of the drafting committee of the Arab Summit, and I attended during the 80s all meeting of head of state. To be honest, Gaddafi is an insult, insult to human intelligence. When you have ignorance but having weapons, this is the result and the money and also the kind, all kind of agenda internationally. The relation with this part of the world were never and ever, I'm talking now about the West, mm -hmm. about helping to establish democracy. See, democracy was very good at home, but once the American crossed the Atlantic Ocean or the European used to cross the Mediterranean Sea, they were very supportive for the most bloody regime for their uh, own. So what's happening now, it's just wonderful. You know? It's just wonderful. People are taking the initiative in a collective way without a clear leadership, but through what they are asking for, it's just democracy. Of course, it's still 
very early. It's very dangerous because there are so many agenda. There are so many people that they would like to take advantage from such situation. But I think this kind of force to see the whole society moving, this is what is new and this is what's going to make history in this part of the world. All right, but Michael, um, you've been ambassador to Egypt and uh, in Egypt it's now not entirely clear what is going to happen now that uh, the president is gone. Uh, the army is still in charge. Uh, parliament has been set aside. Uh, are we really seeing democratic change in Egypt or are we just seeing regime change, but really the army is still really in charge and whoever comes next will probably not, even if there's an election, the army will decide the result and we'll be back to more or less what we had before, maybe with changes around the edge. Well, that's one possibility. Uh, uh, there are any number. But when I compare what's happened, what happened in Egypt and Tunisia with what's going on elsewhere, uh, Yemen and, uh, and uh, Libya in particular, <laughs> I'm rather more optimistic about the possibilities in Tunisia and Egypt uh, because at least there is a, uh, an, an army that has, has acted, I think, pretty responsibly in both cases. I don't think that Field Marshal Tantawi is a Democrat by nature. And I think these deliberations about what form of uh, governance system will be put in place, who will put it in place, who will ultimately control it is still very much up in the air. So I don't take success even in Egypt for granted. Um, my own thinking is that the, uh, the Turkish model, not necessarily because there's an Islamist government there, but the Turkish model that where the army has an underlying role as a sort of guardian of, of, the, uh, of the state but does not intervene on a daily basis, only intervenes in extreme cases. Uh, I think that's not a bad thing to aim for. Why? It's clearly less than perfect, and many people would disagree with it, but it may be attainable. The problem, I think, that we have now is we have a lot of groups in Egypt, a lot of very dedicated people. The question is one of organization and institutions. You don't have many institutions in Egypt, yet Egypt see, seems uh, uh, to be flourishing in them when you compare it to, say, Libya. But you don't have many. What is the one civil society organization that has uh, power, that has roots, that has some legitimacy among its uh, followers and the ability to deliver? And that's the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, it seems to me there are many arguments about the Brotherhood. Uh, Oh, it's changed over the years, it's now much more moderate. Uh, most Egyptians don't support the Brotherhood, they're not an electoral threat. Perhaps they have changed, perhaps they're not an electoral threat, but I don't think any of that can be assumed. And one has to weigh in all of these cases the, uh, the type of regime that is likely to emerge and American interests. In other words, there are certain places like Bahrain that I, I don't think the Saudis, for instance, or the Americans are going to simply let go of. Whether that's democratic or not, it certainly isn't, but I don't think it's going to happen. There are other countries like Yemen where uh, there's, there could be a real, not only power vacuum, but anarchy. Same in Libya. Um, whereas 
Egyptian society, there's, there are no tribes. There are, um, uh, there's a, a kind of unity of feeling of people as Egyptians. The army is held in fairly high regard. Then the question is, will this happen in Jordan? Will it happen in Syria? One interesting thing is that Bahrain and Syria, one of the few things they have in common is a minority rules right now. The Alawis rule in, in Damascus. The Alawis know that if there's a popular revolution and all the generals and all the key decision makers are Alawi, 10% of the population, you have a democratic pluralistic process, they lose power. And in the, in the 80s, uh, you know, in Hama, over 10,000 people were killed by the armed forces to prevent uh, this kind of radicalism. So I think the jury's very much out. There's some hope in the more sophisticated countries, and I would say a, a lot to worry about. It's great to be rid of these people. Uh, I agree with Mukhtar to see this clown, Gaddafi, gone. It must be, uh, create a very good feeling, particularly for Libyans. But their challenge is, what do they replace it with and how do they do it? But even in Egypt, Mohammed, uh, is there a possibility to be careful what you wish for? Because if you think back, say, to 1979, I think uh, when the Shah was deposed in Iran, most people, uh, certainly in Iran, but also I think generally around the world, there was a sense that he was despotic. He might have been trying to modernize his country, but he was, he was uh, running a secret police and torturing people and so on. Now, uh, Iran is not an Arab country. The people are Persian, and there's not perfect comparisons anywhere. But uh, when there was a vacuum in Iran because there wasn't, as uh, Michael points out, really politically organized groups and parties in the traditional sense, the, the Ayatollahs and the religious people were able to move into that vacuum and probably impose a government that most people in Iran were not too happy with. So when you look at the Muslim Brotherhood, say, in Egypt, and as Michael points out, it seems to be one of the better organized groups in the country because there aren't any other political parties. Is there the danger that the Muslim Brotherhood, just by being there and on the ground, can become a significant political force, even possibly a government, or would the, the army not tolerate that? There's a lot in your question. Um, but I think that, first of all, it's very important to distinguish the Iranian Revolution, 1979, from the Egyptian, the January 25th Revolution. First, uh, the Iranian Revolution was, from its very beginning, a very ideological revolution with uh, aspirations for creating a new society. Right? Not exactly clear what the contours of that new society be, but it was a part of the revolution. It wasn't a revolution demanding the respect for legality. Right? It was a it was a, you know, wipe the slate clean, let's start all over again. The January 25th revolution, on the other hand, is very much a revolution that I describe as trying to rescue the state from a regime that systematically subverted the rules of the state itself. Um, the two most central demands of this revolution are uh, putting, putting an end to corruption and putting an end to police abuse and torture. And these things were already illegal under Egyptian law. They're not demanding that Egyptian law be upended, Egyptian institutions be upended, and be replaced whole cloth. They want to have a process which holds government officials accountable to Egyptian law. And that makes it very different, I think, from um, other uh, revolutions. And this agenda, the Muslim Brotherhood, is totally on board with. right? Um, and so uh, to that extent, I don't see, first of all, a, a 
a big incentive on the part of the Muslim Brotherhood to capture the state because their ideological agenda uh, isn't really uh, doesn't really first of all it doesn't require them to capture the state uh, because especially since the 60s they've become largely a social movement and and they're perfectly happy I think to live in uh, a policy that guarantees uh, basic democratic rights because they think they'll be able to do what they, they want to do in terms of social transformation just by having the freedom to, to preach and set up uh, civil society institutions. But wouldn't they in part do that, change the law to make it uh, more of a theocracy? The law would reflect their beliefs? Um, I don't really think that there's a, I mean again if you look at the leadership of the Muslim Brotherhood, many of them are already lawyers and they're sort of well integrated into the formal legal structure of the Egyptian state. I think there's very little criticisms they actually have of substantive Egyptian law. And this is a thread I think that, that unites all the opposition parties, is that essentially this revolution was a demand for the state to respect its own standards of legality, first and foremost. Now, there are other things that they disagree on, and there will be disagreements, but um, there's no nobody, as far as I know, except for very small, marginal groups in Egypt that aren't part of the Muslim Brotherhood demanding for some demanding some kind of religious state right mm -hmm. and those groups didn't participate in the revolution at all so I think that's it's 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 a red herring of course you can't say that anything you can't exclude anything because you don't know what's going to happen if the transition part uh, process completely falls apart then of course all bets are off but I think that's an extremely extremely low probability event in Libya <coughs> If Gaddafi goes, do we have any idea who might replace him, Mukhtar, or is the army in a position to take power? You know, people in the streets everywhere were telling the same thing, from Morocco till Bahrain. I'm going to try to translate. Ashab, you read Isqat Nidam. People would like uh, Isqat Nidam, how do you? To, to replace the regime. Yeah, to, uh, to end the power. Yeah. The system, to end the system. Uh, in Libya, someone commented this, he said, in Libya, people would like to establish a system, because there's no system. Yeah. No system. I'm, I'm not worrying, as uh, Michael Bell said, about what's going to happen, because I don't think any situation will be worse than what we were living during these decades with no hope, so many frustration. Corruption is the rule in the area and nobody cares and everyone actually was preparing his own son even Gaddafi was preparing his own son to take like if it is a, you know uh, his own property so I I guess you know Libyan they have uh, it's a different society as it, it was mentioned it's still uh, tribal we saw yesterday a lot of tribes joining the revolution uh, we saw that during now three days that some parts some some cities especially Al-Baida in, in the East part of the country are totally liberated. Nobody is looting. People are organizing themselves. I think this specific example was happening in the second largest city, Benghazi, is going to be the same in Libya, and they will find a way. There are a lot of wonderful Li Libyan people. Some of them are living in land outside of the country. But as you say, they want to establish the system. So the idea that it would be a democratic, even in quotes, democratic like yes. Turkey or Egypt, that, that's not very likely. Well, Libya, it's not. I, I don't like the example of Turkey because, because of so many reasons, uh, not even the example of Iran. Iran, well, we have now history before. It, it's a failure. And Iranians themselves are demonstrating in the street now. now so, uh, more than that, 
If you see on, in Egypt, the example of Cairo, after the beginning of the revolution on the 25th of last month, on the 28th and 29th, the Muslim Brotherhood, they tried to launch two demonstrations. They asked for two, the one in Ismailia, which is uh, uh, the city from which the Muslim Brotherhood began uh, almost one century ago, and in Alexandria. Nobody followed them. When they asked for such demonstrations, they, they got less than 1,000, only their, their militants, their people. And when you see the young people in this street, and this is the big revol uh, difference also with the Iranian Revolution. The Iranian Revolution, it was very clear from the beginning, Khomeini was in Najaf, then he was in Paris, then he went back to Iran, and he was giving the instruction what to do, and people were, well, it was not the internet at that time, but it was cassettes. They were. Here in Egypt, it's a social movement, it's a popular movement, and people in the street, you know, lots of people are worrying about what's happening, about sectarianism. See, from the beginning till now, we didn't have any Coptic church attacked by the people. Actually, when they were praying, the Muslim, the Coptic uh, people were surrounding them, protecting them from the people sent by, by the power, and vice versa. More than that, now it's very clear that the one who was organizing the bombing of uh, Alexandria Church on the 31st of December was the Minister of Interior of uh, Egypt. So these power, because corrupt, and they would like to stay, they are doing everything. What is shocking a little bit, you know, is in the West, people, how they are scared, you know, like if we have only two alternatives, corruption or theocratic uh, uh, power. It's not going to happen that way. We have to see all the diversity inside the society. I myself so shocked when people talking about my you know, country of origin that they made a huge progress in Morocco, a huge progress of democracy, and they're just comparing the current king with his father. I think the beginning of steps in democracy is changing the We still have a divine uh, monarchy mm -hmm. that he's representing God, and it's in the constitution. So if it's not changed that, nothing is going to happen. And this is what our people asking for in the street. It's, uh, the people, these young people are asking for democracy. This is a generation of Facebook. You know the joke that was happened when, this is when, when Mubarak died and he went, Nasser and Sadat was expecting him. So I told him, Nasser was asking him, did you, will you be hosted for power because of a coup d'etat? Or they killed you, or whatever. I said, no, I was it because of Twitter. Let me take uh, Michael and then uh, Mohammed. Yeah. Well, I, I, um, I may be a bit overly um, pessimistic about outcomes, uh, because in uh, my dealing with the Middle East, I haven't seen very many positive. Now, there's no doubt that this is an earth-shattering uh, earth series of events, and there's a lot of potential. But I think it's very wrong, and I think the seeds of the defeat of the experiment uh, are exacerbated by underestimating the challenges you have to deal with. So, uh, personally, I don't take uh, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt as necessarily, necessarily, a benign organization that is limited to social goals and what have you. I think the Muslim Brotherhood has been very clever in reaching a modus vivendi with the Mubarak government and with Sadat and what have you that allowed them to function, albeit in a very gray zone, but to function effectively as the price for their not disrupting the regime. And in a new set of circumstances where they are free to, to act more, uh, more assertively, 
I'm not as sure that that will continue to be the case because the reason, I, as I see it, that they acted in that way was to ensure their survival under uh, 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 an autocracy. So they didn't demonstrate at first, they demonstrated later, yes. They demonstrated later when they felt that uh, things were going the other way and they better get into the act. They didn't demonstrate at first because of whom Barak were to have come out on top and they had been seen as his adversaries in the streets, they would have suffered. Uh, one other thing I'd like to say is in their uh, position, in the, their governance propositions, they do hold that there should be a freely elected parliament and a, a, um, a democratic process and what have you, except that there should be a council of sages who will rule on whether these parliamentary laws co are coincident with Sharia law. And that kind of thing worries me. Now, I may be worrying too much, but I think it's very dangerous thinking in regional terms or world terms to underestimate this. Because if that is to happen, it's going to create a whole new uh, dynamic. We've got a new dynamic now. We'll certainly have another one if Egypt goes uh, fundamentalist. And uh, as I say, hopefully I'm wrong. I've been too, too skeptical in the past, but I think there are a lot of social forces that will lead to a, a tumultuous path towards pluralism. Well, haven't you had a point? Well, I think it's never a smooth past, past, path to pluralism. Um, so I, to I, I totally agree that it's very important to look at the kinds of obstacles that one faces. But I really think in the, in the rank ordering of obstacles that Egyptians face, face, the Muslim Brotherhood ranks pretty low on the obstacles. Um, but I don't want this to be dominated by the Muslim Brotherhood because I think this is a very, like I said, a relatively small problem. But I'd just like to say, what are the kinds of things that Egyptians on the ground are talking about and demanding now? Um, you know, when I talk to my relatives, again, I would say very conservative religious people, but also professionals, what are they, what are they demanding now? Well, they're university professors. They are demanding that the state respect the autonomy of universities. Because in theory, Egyptian universities are independent. But in fact, the Mubarak regime had infiltrated them and used them as instruments of political domination. So they are in the, the, the university faculties are organizing to demand the right to appoint, to elect their universities, a presidents, and elect their deans so they can have actual institutional legitimacy. Now, this is happening across the board in Egypt. You have employees in state-owned banks, other state-owned firms refusing to work as long as Mubarak-era cronies are still in charge. Um, and so what we're having now is a deepening of uh, the revolution's egalitarian and democratic spirit throughout sectors of civil society. So again, this is why I don't think you've got the Iran situation, because I think civil, civil society institutions, of which I think there are actually quite a lot, are quite vibrant, and now life is being breathed back into them because people think that actually you can take them seriously again and there's an opportunity to take ownership of these institutions that in theory were already theirs but in practice they had been excluded from. Um, and so their success in doing that I think far more than Muslim Brotherhood and uh, other kinds of religious issues is going to determine the outcome of this revolution. I want to go back to Bar Bahrain for a minute Michael because you you made the point that neither the United States nor Saudi Arabia would allow um, to, loo to give up control of, and, and Bahrain 
uh, I think most people know, is the big American naval base in, in the Middle East and basically patrols the, the tanker routes out of Saudi Arabia. But uh, we've seen a violent crackdown there, even though President Obama seems to be playing Bahrain more or less the way he's been playing Egypt. Um, so does he not understand? <laughs> I can't believe he doesn't understand the strategic importance of it, but what, what do you see happening in, in Bahrain and, and uh, contiguous to it to Saudi Arabia? Well, like so many of these things, one can never be sure. I mean, 30% of, uh, of, of Bahrainis are uh, Sunnis. The remaining 70% are Shia. They have lower uh, socioeconomic status. Uh, they're, they're obviously uh, poor. Um, uh, Bahrain is not an oil state. It exists in large measure on subventions from Saudi Arabia. The, the Saudis, uh, given their attitudes towards Shias, certainly want a Sunni elite to continue to govern there. Uh, I suspect the Iranians might want uh, the Shia to come to power. And if we're talking about a, the pluralistic kind of democracy that may come to exist in Tunisia or Egypt, it's hard to see that replicating itself in Bahrain, or as I say in Syria, where you in effect have a minority uh, uh, ruling a majority. Because if the majority comes to power, and there are centuries of animosity between them, or decades, uh, then it seems to me uh, the privileged lose their privileges, the, under, uh, the, uh, the less privileged take power, and you don't have the kind of national reconciliation that might be possible, say, in Egypt. And uh, I think the Saudis have so much invested there, and the Americans, although the Saudis may act as their surrogate, that ultimately they're less concerned with the pluralistic political process there. They'd probably like some liberalization, but nothing, nothing that would threaten their strategic interests, American or Saudi, vis-a-vis -vis Iran. So could we, uh, could we see at the end of this process, if we can ever put an end point on it, that uh, a number of changes would happen in these different countries, uh, but the changes would be individual to those countries and, and you would have, uh, I guess, sort of a patchwork in the Arab world with maybe the most uh, liberal being Egypt and uh, the least liberal being Bahrain and Libya somewhere in between. And, and, and what, how would that work in the cohesion then of, of the Middle East, particularly the Arab Middle East? Yes, there, there are local realities, you know, since you are mentioning about Saudi Arabia in some issues you find the regime in Saudi Arabia is much more liberal than the society. The society is very, very conservative. This is a fact, so I don't expect them. But from the other side, should, can they allow in Bahrain, Saudi, with the Americans to happen something else? I don't think it's not in their hands. Sometimes they cannot even, uh, are they going to accept or to allow in their own society what's going to happen? But uh, going back to, to Egypt is very important in the area. What's happening in Egypt and the historical role of Egypt, definitely it will have a, uh, a huge impact. A huge impact uh, in Egypt, even with the corruption, with so many things. When you see people, what they are asking now, uh, it's a new constitution. So to have this social uh, contract in the society, 
And when you see what they are claiming about uh, this, everything is about democracy, but democracy based on pluralism and based on, on justice, which uh, didn't happen here. And from another uh, hand, uh, if I have to talk about who is losing, who is the loser, I think the first loser in what's happening now in the area is Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda used to tell people nothing is going to happen uh, except the way we are trying to change the societies. And now we are looking to example the revolution with uh, a huge success and everywhere and everybody is ma and nobody is mentioning Al-Qaeda or, uh, you know, some months ago, we don't forget that a lot of people, uh, they were uh, talking about Al-Qaeda, but it was much more as a reaction. See what happened in Algeria in 1992 when the Islamists were elected. A lot of people, when you ask them in the street, why did you elect for the feast, the Islamist party said, no, we were voting against the power, against the regime. And uh, I can understand when, when people in the street are reacting because of the frustration, because of the corruption, because, but I think with time and since it's a huge movement, uh, involving the whole society, things are going to be corrected. This is actually why I find myself very optimistic about uh, the future. We might have lots of problems during that, but in the end, it's going to be there. Mohammed, do you think Al-Qaeda is losing ground because of these different movements? And, well, and, and even in, a, in our country, a lot of people get elected to government because people are voting against the previous government rather than embracing necessarily the one coming in. <laughs> well, I think Mukhtar's point is absolutely spot on, bearing in mind, of course, that you know, Al-Qaeda had very little support to begin with. But I think what's, uh, what is absolutely uh, critical to realize, as Mukhtar pointed out, is that now you see uh, Arabs in countries all over the Arab world claiming their status as citizens, rejecting the idea of being passive objects of the government and realizing that they can take ownership of their own societies. And that's not going to go away. And like I said, it's in fact, in Egypt, it's deepening. You're seeing it spread out throughout the institutions of society where people are claiming the rights as citizens that were just um, ignored um, through the lot, for, the, for the past 50 years. And, and so as Mukhtar said, I, I share his views completely. I'm very optimistic because you have um, a degree of mobilization of civic consciousness uh, that has really not happened not that I'm that old, but certainly not in my lifetime. It's not compar I think the only time it's comparable to in Egypt is the, the revolution of 1919. And Egypt is a much more sophisticated society than it was in 1919. There's going to be a much deeper social base to support parliamentary democracy. And so I, have, you know, I, I, th I think that the odds are with the Egyptians succeeding. I think there's not a reason to be excessively pessimistic. I know that's the business of people, a lot of people in the security and the analyst world. But I, from, the, from January 25th, I've been telling everybody, this is, rev this is revolution, and it's going to succeed. And so far, you know, praise be to God, it's worked the way I've seen it. Because I can see the people. I see what's happened in their, in their spirit. I see their determination, and I see their consciousness. Right? And so I am very confident that uh, they are not going to be snookered back into a, uh, a military dictatorship, nor are they going to accept any other kind of dictatorship, right? I want to get to the questions, but before I do, uh, Michael, just, I mean, obviously the people in Israel must be watching this with, um, well, uh, almost more interest than the people in the Arab world, because uh, a lot of what uh, goes on is going to really impact on them, particularly the Camp David Peace Accord. Is it the assessment of, people you know in Israel that that 
treaty is now the treaty between uh, Egypt and Israel is in danger, and perhaps the treaty between Jordan and Israel as well? I, I think uh, Israelis, uh, maybe it's because of the time I spent there, always tend to think of the worst outcome. And so uh, they are, must be very, very concerned that the, with the radicalization in the region and that in a sense, democratization, let's take Egypt, will lead to a, a harsher view of Israel and its policies. And a, not only will it mean the loss of a partner, that is Mubarak, but to a hostile regime on their border. Now, I, I don't think it need be as bad as they anticipate, but I think maybe uh, their expectations. They, they, I, I had a discussion with an Israeli professor from Haifa University, that's the best way to characterize it, the, the other day, and his only concern seemed to be to get, some, if Mubarak went, to get someone like Mubarak back in power. And the idea that this would be essentially as unstable as the current or the previous situation it had been, and that Israel just might have to accept uh, at least some harsher rhetoric without putting the basis of the agreement, the peace treaty, at risk, uh, seemed to him to be totally unacceptable. But I think that's what's likely to happen. I don't, I don't think... Uh, for a government that's rational of whatever color in Egypt, there are too many benefits accruing from, from that peace treaty with Israel, uh, both in uh, geostrategic terms, but maybe more importantly in economic terms with tourism and what have you in the Sinai, uh, uh, to, to bring this back to a no war, no peace situation. This would be, uh, this would be uh, really insane. And, but for the Israelis to expect uh, the, the close intelligence and security cooperation that they've had with the Mubarak regime may be wishing for a little too much. Which would put them more, more at risk if yeah, they don't have that cooperation. It would, give, it would yeah. reinforce yeah. this situation. They've, they've had a tradition of working with the Egyptians now. That, that will be diminished. I, I mentioned in this conversation that Amr Musa, the current head of the Arab League and former Egyptian foreign minister, uh, might be the kind of guy that would emerge as a compromise candidate, even though he's associated with the uh, former regime. He certainly has the leadership uh, qualities that would be needed, I think, to overcome the, the, uh, the gray faces and to provide a focus. Now, many won't agree with me. They'll say he's compromised part of the regime, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that may be, but he is interested. Now, if he were to come, for instance, he would be more critical of Israel. There's no doubt about it. But I don't think the, the, that he would undermine the basic working relationship that the two have together now. Right. Now, do you want to have a comment on the possibility of what happens to the Camp David Accords, the peace treaty, and, and then Very you quickly, and then Mokhtar. I largely agree with, with the ambassador, except that I would say that the Egyptians, I think, don't need to break the Camp David Accords to make the point that they are not going to aid and abet Israeli colonization of the West Bank. They're not going to recognize a so-called Jewish Jerusalem. Um, all those things will again strengthen, I think, in the long term, the prospects for real peace. The kinds of terms that Israel 
was demanding the Palestinians accept were not for not feasible. They're not feasible. The Arab Peace Plan of 2002 provide the only feasible peace uh, terms for peace plan. And with Egypt, with a new government in Egypt, I think Egypt will insist on the terms of the 2002 peace plan. And I think Israel will be better off understanding that it needs to abandon right wing. In the meantime, uh, whatever whatever yeah. is recognized, you don't see the the treaty itself being abrogated. Part, you know, just one last thing. Camp David had a second part to it that involved genuine peace with the Palestinians, which the Israelis have never acted on. And so that's the Egypt's objection. I totally disagree a little bit with what said. First of all, there's a principle. It's not up to the Israeli to choose who is going to run Egypt. It's to the Egyptian people. Then I think the most scary thing... I wasn't thing, questioning that. I was just questioning no, no, whether whoever uh, the Egyptians end up yeah. having uh, running the country, yes, will, yes. will they maintain no, the No, 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 it was ma no. mentioned why uh, anyway, they should anyway. be much better for Amr Musa or this one. It's up to the Egyptian people. Second thing, the Israeli uh, government from both sides from both uh, different parties, were always claiming we are the only democracy in the, in the area, in an ocean of dictatorship. And I don't think they're now happy to see democracy coming there. I think if we have to have lasting peace in the area, we have to be very, very pragmatic. We cannot allow the Israeli to choose who is going to represent them and ask them or ask the American to choose who is going to represent the Egyptian or the Palestinian or whatever. I would rather prefer a very hard and difficult talk, but to have a lasting uh, peace that involves everybody in the area, that involves the people, even with Camp David. What is now between the Israeli and the Egyptian? There are no visits. It, it's only between the government, but there's no normalization between the people living together like a, a Canadian and, and American. If you want right. the real peace, it's another dimension. I'm going to go to the questions. Um, Mohammed, why don't you uh, have a go with this one first? Uh, the question says, Islam is both a religion and a political system. Do you think that progress towards democracy can only happen if there is a separation between religious Islam and political Islam? Well, I mean, I think there are lots of different political uh, uh, implications of uh, of, of Islam, many of which are very uh, consistent with uh, supporting uh, a, a constitutional democracy, others that aren't. Now, my personal opinion is that, or my personal read of Egypt, is that the prevailing interpretation of Islam uh, reinforces democratic values and is not contradictory to it. So I don't think that uh, separation is necessarily the right thing. In fact, what you can see is some ways it can be quite dangerous and quite reinforcing of authoritarianism. So state-appointed clerics, for example, uh, tried to encourage people not to protest. They, tried, they wanted to encourage people to support Mubarak. And you saw the same thing in Saudi Arabia. The Grand Mufti of Saudi Arabia came out with these horrific statements against uh, the, the revolutionaries. So you have to be very careful about apolitical religion. Apolitical religion is capable of endorsing every kind of tyranny. So what you want is a religion that is consistent with and supports constitutional government, not one that's completely indifferent. Uh, let me try you with this one. Uh, because you, you did mention uh, in Egypt uh, people protecting each other's place of religion. Uh, this person says, as an Egyptian Christian, my concern is how Christians will be treated under the uh, Islamic Brotherhood if they gain more influence in Egypt. Is there a hope for equality for Christians as well as Christians to continue, or, or will, pardon me, or will 
Christians continue to be second-class citizens. And this is in Egypt. Well, I think one of the best things that can be done by the revolution is to correct things. I, I, I lived myself several years in Egypt, and I agree that uh, you see, like, if there's a second kind of citizen, this is part of reality. If it was, uh, you know, the government of Mubarak, where they, no, no, we don't have that, no, it used to exist. And the only thing is to agree about constitution based on citizenship and all Egy Egyptians are equal. This is a hope will be not only for the Coptic Egyptians, it will be for all minorities uh, in the Middle East. One of the problems that a lot of people don't know here, here in Canada, a lot of countries there, you have your own religion and sometimes your ethnic group on your ID. When I was special envoy in Iraq, that was uh, horrible because sometimes people were driving their car. I'm talking about 2006. They're stopped by young, ignorant people with arms. According to what is written in your ID, you will be killed or, or you can go home. And everything should be changed through this. If the revolution will guarantee to have a constitution based on respect of citizenship and developing a culture of respect, I think this is the best, biggest hope for the whole area. Michael, one last thought from you. Um, the countries that we've seen affected so far, is this the end of the list or are we going to see more? I mean, there's been some in Syria, but are we going to see... And what about Lebanon? Lebanon always seems to me a very fragile country in the Middle East and it has the dynamic of a significant Christian population as well as obviously the majority Muslim population. Uh, uh, is anything going to happen in Lebanon? And of course, if it happened in Lebanon, uh, Israelis would be particularly concerned. Well, uh, Lebanon is such a particular case uh, where there is a, in a sense, a pluralistic process, but it, it's, a, it's a, a process between communities and the leadership of those communities. The Maronites are now split, but uh, call the shots. So it, it's really a question of to what extent these, these few members of the elite can agree on how governance uh, proceeds or doesn't proceed. I, I don't think things, things can change there purely because, or at least in the first instance, because of the, uh, of the uh, religious and ethnic demographics. I think it's, we're going to see uh, possibly more of the same. Um, my view is that it's not, in the region as a whole, it's not necessarily going to, to, uh, to get better. I hope it does. But long-held traditions, I mean, this is, this is something I noticed uh, being over there. Uh, one is struck by how different communities are and how their threat perceptions exist and how their, their modes of dealing with each other or within their community are, are different. And I think these traits that have been developed over decades or hundreds of years are very hard to to break as opposed to the universalistic values that I suppose we would all like to see exist. So my question is always how, it's, it's, it's great to talk about getting to X or Y, but the problem is how do you do it? And uh, I think in the Lebanese case, they can't do it. And what you see is going to be what you get for the foreseeable future unhappily. Well, we've talked a bit about tyranny, and unfortunately, we uh, live with the tyranny of the clock. Mm -hmm. So while I didn't get to all of your questions, I apologize for that. Uh, please join me in thanking our panel for their uh, insight, information, and uh, coming to see us today. Thank you very much, gentlemen. I'd like to now call Danny Ossoff, director of the Canadian Club, to the podium.
Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you very much for your time and attention in joining us today with our uh, exceptional moderator and panel to talk about these really transformative events of the Middle East that will obviously have an impact on, on Canada and the world. And one of the things, as I was just reflecting upon some of the discussions, as you look, for, as you look back on things, and I was on a plane catching up on some reading, and just to really take some perspective of how extraordinary what has occurred is. And this is from The Economist, not to pick on them, but this was a story here, and this was in respect of Tunisia. And I quote, this is from January 8th, 2011. Tunisia's troubles are unlikely to unseat the 70-year-old, 74-year-old president or even to jolt his model of autocracy. Truly amazing how wrong even the most informed of us can be and to see how people can take the opportunity to alter their own lives. And we have seen it denied in places like Tiananmen and other places in the Middle East, but it was done in Tahrir. And I want to thank our exceptional moderator, Mr. Newman, our insightful, experienced, and thoughtful panelist, Hamid Fadl, Michael Bell, and Mukhtar Lamani. We truly have been privileged to be able to hear these perspectives as we continue to see history unfold and reflect on how these things may impact again, our own country and how we advance our national interests. And on that note, and as the Canadian Club to facilitate these kinds of events, and we think about how we in Canada may approach things, I had one last quote that I wanted to share with everyone. And this was from the Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice in a speech she made in Cairo in 2005, where she said, again, I quote, for 60 years, my country, the United States, pursued stability at the expense of democracy in this region, the Middle East, and achieved neither. So that tells us we've got to look at things in a new way, to look at the people of that place, and to see how we as Canadians can ensure we are dealing with the people to advance our own national interest in a sustainable and enduring way to our benefit. Thank you very much. Thank you, Danny, Don, Michael, Mohammed, and Mokhtar. And uh, thank you once more to our uh, reception sponsor, Bennett Jones. This concludes our television programming, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. We're grateful to Rogers TV and 680 News for their continuing promotion of Canadian Club events. Thank you all for joining us today. This meeting is now adjourned. <laughs>